This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, OG, guess what? It's actually Monday on the Stacking Benjamin Show. You actually got that right. Okay. It is Monday. The good news is, I know what day it is. The other good news is, it's been a great uh, holiday weekend. How about for you? Couldn't be better. Well, we're going to make it a little better. How about that? Add a little salsa in here. Give you some listening stuff. Okay. Okay. What else you got? Here's the deal, folks. We are counting down, OG and I, seven of our quirkiest episodes from the last eight, nine-ish years that we've done this show. You like my ish? Not not really certain. Not going to look... Because we didn't look it up. <laughs> we're on vacation and we're still working. So take what you get, people. Uh, our number seven that we did back on Friday of the quirkiest guests we've had on, we started off with Tracy Conan, the forensic accountant and accountant spy, putting the financial records together to catch bad people. Number six, we talked to Anna Corwin, who explained why nuns live longer than other groups of people. Number five, Lindsay Goldwert from earlier this year. That's going to be our most recent episode on the list. She told us lessons you can learn from dominatrixes. And today, in the number four spot, we're going to talk with documentarian Sanjay Rawal, who did this documentary about an ultra marathon that takes place around one city block. 3,100 miles around one New York City block over and over and over. And uh, this was called How to Win in the Long Run. We did this show back in 2019. OG, you're a big runner. Yeah, yeah. I run between here and the wine fridge. <laughs> Very fast. There, there it is. Uh, we also talk about some interesting headlines Tom Petty's estate, Tom Petty had passed away back in 2017, and we dig into some of the lessons of uh, lingering estate planning. And as you know, OG, I don't think those are still solved. Yeah, probably not, actually. Three years, three years later, three plus years later. And then talking about a credit card reward program that was out at the time that you might want to skip. We also, by the way, dig into a question on the Haven Lifeline. Remember, by the way, we try to take out anything that doesn't comply with today's rules, but these are old episodes. We could have missed something. So before you act on anything, make sure you consult with your financial pro. You should do that anyway when you listen to any show online, but also when you're listening to shows that are over a year old. So here we go. Ready to press that button, OG? Okay, let's do it. Another button. I'm good at pushing buttons. Number I push everybody's buttons all day long. <laughs> you are great at pushing buttons. Number four, how to win in the long run with Sanjay Rawal. This is from June 10th, 2019. Who's with me? Yeah! 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 Go! 
live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and on today's show, we welcome the creator of a documentary about running 3,100 miles around one New York City block, Sanjay Rawal. Plus, in our headline segment, there are estate problems with yet another deceased star. Who is it? We'll share later today. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener and leave time for my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are shaking out the cobwebs and stretching out to celebrate yet another Monday. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. And it is Monday, and we're so happy to be here. I am Joe Saul Cihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and across the card table from me, all dressed up with a podcast to make. It's my good friend, the other guy, or as we call him, OG. Did you do your calisthenics this morning? Are you doing the push-up challenge? I'm, I'm not doing a push-up challenge. I am doing a detox, which is... An absolute disaster. I recommend this. Not the worst thing imaginable. I recommend this to nobody. Like I like to retox. Those are the things I like to do most. <laughs> right. See how many Oreo cookies I can eat in four minutes. Yeah, exactly. Twinkies. You can do that with blueberry pie. There's all sorts of different things you can retox with. I heard that makes the body stronger because it's I try. It, it's endurance. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's seeing what like. It how can do withstand. I process an entire gallon of ice cream? Like, get to work, body. Let's see what happens. We got a show that won't be fast and it will be thoughtful, but still a heck of a lot of fun, OG. Okay. We've got director Sanjay Rawal with us today. You may have seen him. If you listen to podcast about endurance sports, you may have seen him. And we know financial planning is an endurance sport in many aspects. There's so many takeaways. Financial from advising this. is. I know that. <laughs> Imagine, first of all, a race that's 3,100 miles. That by itself is difficult to imagine. It goes over 70 days, but imagine second that that same ultra marathon is around one single New York city block. How do you keep track of it? It's well, we'll find out. We're going to ask him today. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Barron's breakdown over Tom Petty's estate offers a lesson. Did you see this headline? I didn't know Tom Petty died. You can crack John Denver jokes all day, but you didn't know Tom Petty passed away? No. When was that? Yeah, that was, geez, it's been a while ago now, six months. I don't have the date in front of me, but I do have this piece in front of me. He's now among the wildflowers? So, Oh, boy. A disagreement among family members of late singer-songwriter Tom Petty that spilled into the courts underlines the importance of precise language in trust and estate documents. So reports mm-hmm. wealthmanagement.com, which notes that Adria Petty and Anna Kim Violet, Petty's daughters from his first marriage, recently sued his widow, Dana York Perry, and are seeking at least $5 million in damages. The daughters accused Dana of setting up a company Tom Petty Legacy LLC is a vehicle to deprive them of assets. The company is separate from Petty Unlimited LLC, established in 2018 to manage the singer's assets after he died. The daughters claim the terms of Petty's trust give them, quote, equal participation 
and making decisions about handling the estate, Dana's claimed in court documents the daughters are attempting to, quote, rule by majority. She also has said that as sole trustee for the estate, she gets the final word on decisions. Both interpretations are plausible. Carrie Harrington, a trust and estate attorney at Levenfeld Perlstein in Chicago, tells wealthmanagement.com. Equal participation could mean Petty wanted each of the three to have an equal vote, which would give the daughters a two-to-one majority. Could also mean the daughters have the right to participate in the decision-making process, but can be overruled by Dana. The attorney who drafted legal documents for Petty could provide clarity on his intentions. The lesson here for financial planners and for people doing an estate, I will say, this piece is written for financial planners, seems to be to make sure the language in trust and estate documents is crystal clear, preventing multiple interpretations. I think it's important for that. It's also important to think about the dominoes that happen when you have the people that you want in charge in charge. So how do they get along now? You know, you're going to go, well, I want my two daughters and my third wife or whatever to be in charge of my estate. How do I think that relationship's going to look? How do I think those decisions are going to be made? Well, it's pretty clear. If I were the daughters, I would say, hey, you and me, let's uh, gang up on this and we'll get it the way we want it. I mean, that's pretty obvious that that's likely to be a scenario that you should consider. And it's the same thing when it comes to choosing guardians for your kids or trustees for your investment accounts or, you know, powers of attorney for financial or medical decisions likely you have kind of a succession line built in your estate plan, but let's talk about like how those different people in succession work together and make sure that there's no ulterior motives. This is the reason why I like having an attorney involved when my estate documents are done. Now, if your estate is very, very simple, just getting it done using off the shelf stuff, I think for now could be fine. But problems like this begin to emerge when the waters are a little murky um, mm-hmm. and the and the wording is not exact. And you start talking about millions and millions of dollars. But not even millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it could be thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you've got a second marriage, kids by the first marriage who don't like your new spouse and you pass away and you use ambiguous language in your estate documents because you went with off the shelf stuff instead of having an attorney involved, now you got problems. In this case, it appears that the attorneys may be able to give some clarification around what they thought Petty meant. Still, I don't know the legality of the attorney's interpretation. How how, how, how much worth does the court give that? You know, that's really important. I think the other thing to mention here is when it comes to an estate plan, everybody's in such a darn hurry. Have you, did you notice that too? Like, Hey, grandma died. Uh, We got to sell our house tomorrow. Just take your time. You want to take the time, especially these, these estate planning documents are, you know, tens of pages, if not hundreds of pages long, there's no sense in hurrying through it because sometimes you can make a mistake in there that you can't undo and you go, Oh, well, if I would have read to chapter 12, I would have figured out that I shouldn't have done what I did in chapter eight, you know, or that didn't apply or whatever the case would be because everybody's in such a gosh darn hurry. I think there really is such limited things that you have to make immediate decisions on that you you can afford yourself a fairly decent amount of time to make sure you do it the right way. Our second headline comes to us from Market Watch. This is written by Jacob Passy. This is one credit card rewards program you might want to skip. 
So for OG, who's collecting every reward program out there. One of everything. You you might want to skip this one. Two of some things. The pedal Visa cards geared toward people who are new to credit or have a limited credit history, but a new rewards program launched by the card could end up becoming a roadblock for people looking to improve their credit score, experts say. Pedal, which has received backing from PayPal co-founder and entrepreneur Peter Thiel, launched the card last October in partnership with WebBank. It's designed to appeal to people with weak credit or no credit history. Consumers don't even need a credit score to sign up, nor do they need to make an upfront deposit to secure the card. Instead, the company looks at consumers, quote, digital financial records to determine their credit worthiness. That record includes looking at bank accounts to get a sense of their spending habits. If they do have a credit score, then that may factor into their approval. Consequently, people who have a history of mispayments or bankruptcy might be denied. The card also carries no fees and a credit limit up to $10,000. Its annual percentage rate varies between 15.24% and 26.24%. To be fair, that starts at a lower rate than the APRs offered by many other secured cards that also help customers build credit. The Discover It Secured card, for example, has a standard variable APR of 25.24. Pedal points out that the lower credit limits for secured cards restricts customers' ability to keep a low balance to credit limit, thereby slowing down their ability to build credit. Both the rates for Pedal and the higher rates for many other secured cards are well above the national average of 17.72, although that figure obviously includes those with long credit histories and high credit scores. Here's the rub, OG. Pedal says its new reward program launched in May is designed to reward users for making on-time payments. Every cardholder will initially earn 1% back on all purchases made with the card. After paying on time for six months, the rate will increase to 1.25% back. And after another six months, it increases to 1.5% back, which is the most cardholders can earn. Our goal here is to incentivize on-time payments, yada, yada, yada. But some consumers may want to approach this concept with caution, the piece says. By their nature, credit card reward programs can encourage people to spend beyond their means, financial experts say. Reward programs tend to cause people to overuse their credit cards and eventually end up carrying a balance when they didn't mean to, said Luis Rosa, a certified financial planner in Henderson, Nevada. People tend to charge everything they can on their credit cards in order to take advantage of the point rewards. Meanwhile, the money in their checking accounts, higher than it normally would be, this can cause a false sense of the available money in the checking account. I like both of those, OG. I think it's a good time for us to remind people that while we'll talk about credit reward programs sometimes here on the show and talk about them favorably, man, this is a big case of know yourself. And maybe if you're somebody just establishing credit, credit card reward program might be might be a little little far. I've seen this happen many times when companies come out with a new program, right? Get 100,000 points for doing this. You got to spend $10,000 in the first three months. Well, if you don't normally spend $3,500 a month on your credit card, you want that 100,000 points. So you go out trying to find something to do that with. And now you end up with a balance. And as if you have one month of interest payments, you pretty much have eaten up an entire year's worth of probably more than a year's worth of reward point value and you lose money on the deal. So sometimes it's better to just pay cash for stuff. I mean, I don't necessarily mean cash cash, but I mean, you know, if you're saying, well, if I could get this new credit card and I can get 50,000 miles, I can go on a free trip. It's like, well, yeah, but it's going to cost you 400 bucks in interest <laughs> to do it. Why don't you just buy a $99 
ticket on Southwest, it'd still save you 200 bucks, you know, <laughs> going around trips. So don't walk around tripping over dollars to pick up pennies, I guess, is, uh, is the way I read into that. Yeah, it's so, it's so difficult uh, when they make these rewards sound great. And if you're somebody that spends any time at all online, oh, gee, these travel hackers make it sound really oh, exciting. Easy. So probably the most notable person in this space right now is the points guy, uh, Brian, whatever his last name is, I can't remember. And he just started a video blog, a vlog on YouTube. And one of the most interesting questions, I guess, that he gets is, tell us your points balance, right? <laughs> you do all this stuff on points, tell us your points balance. Well, he showed his points history for the last 12 months with American Express. And he says, you know, we have 1.7 million American Express points right now. And we have another 1.6 million that are pending for the next statement. He said, in the last year, we've earned 18 million points. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So when you see Brian Kelly, is that his last name, I think? Brian, when you see him in a first-class seat in an Emirates airline that cost $32,000, and he's like, I got this all in points. Yeah, the dude spends $18 million a year on his Amex card. I mean, that is probably a hundred times more than most people spend. So, so it's going to take you a lifetime to get enough points to do the same stuff in the same tempo that you see everybody doing. But remember, it's his job to tell you how easy it is to spend your Amex points or sure. how easy it is to spend your chase points. And look, I, you can, you know, if you have enough chase points, you can go to this cool thing and look how awesome this is and champagne and, you know, that sort of thing. It was really kind of eye-opening for me to have him recognize that his operation includes 70 full-time people, you know, I mean, yeah. And running a million dollars a month on his American express card among other things. Yeah. That's a straight up, very large, small business that he's running. Yeah. And you can't compare yourself when you see somebody on Instagram or you can, you know, you see these blog articles of, Hey, I went on this two week trip for free. It's easy for him to accumulate a million points to do that because you know, he's got the revenue to support it in his business and he's got, you know, 70 people spending. You have you, you and your spouse, maybe you, your spouse and your kid, you know, that's that. I mean, so beware keeping up with the jokes. I think that's definitely takeaway number one from this piece. Takeaway number two from the first piece about Tom Petty. Before you go do the estate plan the cheap way, I think remember Specific language matters when it comes to making sure that your estate is uh, taken care of in the right way. You ever think about running uh, 3,100 miles around a New York City block, OG? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> I know you dream about that all the time. Like Mrs. I've OG. I dreamt about running around a block once. <laughs> this this film is called 3100 Run and Become, and we're about to talk to Sanjay Rawal about it. Sanjay spent over a decade working in the nonprofit and government sectors while running a small agricultural genetics company with his father. After working with Abby Disney and Jeannie Redeker as a consultant to their hit documentary, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, he was bit by the film bug. His first short, Ocean Monk, 
took the best short doc prize at the 2010 St. Louis Film Festival. A second film, Challenging Impossibility, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and played in 75 more, winning a number of awards. Uh, Food Chains is his first feature. This movie, 3100, run and become has so much to do with financial planning. I'm sure, OG, you and I will have something to say about it afterwards, but for now, let's talk to director Sanjay Rawal. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's our new friend Sanjay Rawal. How are you, man? Joe, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me down here. How long have you been a runner? I started running competitively when I was 15 years old, and I, I ran track in high school and a little bit in college, and uh, you know, it was all about winning in those days. And now I've found different reasons to run. That's what I was going to say. It's really transformed for you. When did you make the transition from running to win to running really as a part of your life? To be honest, it was only during the process of making the movie 3100 Run and Become. I'd always known that there was a deeper purpose in running and not just a psychological purpose, but a spiritual purpose. And I hadn't really found words or seen that put into action until I started spending time with runners from the Southwest, particularly the Navajo Nation. So you you were first introduced to these. How were you introduced to the Navajo runners? You know, interestingly enough, I, I was a student of an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, and I went down a rabbit hole on Native American running and was pointed to a group called Wings of America based in Santa Fe. As it happened, Wings of America was, was co-founded by a fellow student of Sri Chinmoy, and I didn't even know that. So I kind of bounced all around the United States only to find the, the closest possible connection. Have you always been a documentarian? You know, I used to work in human rights and then I worked in finance for a little bit. And, you know, af- after a while, you know, having spent a lot of times, a lot of time overseas, uh, I collected stories and I realized that some of the stories that I'd been told were things that possibly could inspire people. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, because ostensibly this is a financial show, <laughs> is, is because of the fact that a lot of the people in this film they're not chasing money, as you know, Sanjay. They're chasing something else. There's this spiritualness, this fulfillment that they're chasing. What is it, do you think, that they're really chasing if it's not about money? So as you know, the film is based on the world's longest running race, which is 3,100 miles. Uh, it's, it's held on a half-mile block sidewalk loop in New York City, and competitors are required to do about 60 miles a day, 59 miles a day at least, to finish within the 52-day window. There's no glamour. There's no trophy. You get a cake at the end and a pat on the back. And it's a great question. Why do people do this? The film explores the elemental spiritual side of nature um, and human nature. People do that race because it unlocks something that's very, very difficult for people to unlock in day-to-day life. It puts them in touch with a part of themselves where, if you can imagine what, what an incredible state it would be in to be happy and joyful and blissful when you're pounding out 60 miles a day. I mean, it seems unfathomable, but that's the reason why people do that race. And I wanted to find that place within myself and learn how to get there through these runners. So this is as much a spiritual journey for you as it was about making a movie. Well, you know, to be honest, my last movie was a a film on farm workers called Food Chains that I did with Eva Longoria. And I spent two years 
basically filming in uh, tiny American farm worker towns, just gorging myself on the best Mexican food possible. And I needed something <laughs> to like get back in shape, to be honest. So how did you first hear about the 3100? I moved to New York uh, after graduating Cal in 1997. And I just ended up in a neighborhood that uh, placed me about a mile away from the course of the 3100 mile race. And the summer I moved to New York City was the summer that that race started. And it, it scared the living daylights out of me. I was a track runner, not even a marathoner. I, I didn't know how and why anybody would do that. And I'd made some friends who ran that race. And I saw them coming back every year or every other year. And at least as far as I knew, they were normal people. They were nice people. They weren't like freaks of nature or just like Navy SEAL types. And I realized they weren't doing it for any other reason than it was making them better people. And that blew my mind because I, I never ran to become a better person. Where are the roots of the race from? Because this race, my understanding is this race has very, very deep, deep roots. You know, in the late 1800s, there was this phenomenon called pedestrianism where people would pay uh, or would bet on people walking around a quarter mile loop in Madison Square Garden and, and to see who could run or walk the most miles in a week, in six days, actually. And the founder of the New York City Marathon, Fred LeBeau, and the Indian spiritual teacher who lived in New York, Sri Chinmoy, in 1986 decided together to kind of relaunch a six-day race. Um, marathoning was counterculture in the 70s. Ultra-distance, multi-day races became counterculture in the 80s. And both Sri Chinmoy and Fred soon saw that runners wanted more than just six days. So they pushed to 10 days and to 1,000 miles, to 1,300 miles. In 1996, there was a 2,700-mile race. And in 1997, Sri Chinmoy pushed it to 3,100 miles, which is the official, officially the longest certified uh, race in the world. Is that why it's 3,100 miles is just to be the longest race? You know, he kept having to come up with arbitrary numbers. After the sixth day, it just jumped to 10. And then he, he made a 1,300-mile race because he came to the U.S. from India first on April 13th. And then he decided to, to push it to 2,700 because he was born on August 27th. And then when people wanted more, you know, he was born in 1931. So <laughs> it was pushed to 3,100. Thankfully, there's no other higher numbers kind of in his own life. So it stopped at that. You start the film uh, following this runner from Finland, who's a phenomenal runner. Uh, how do you pronounce his name, Sanjay? Esprihanol? That's perfect. All right. And how did you first get introduced to him? So he was one of the people that I saw coming back to the race summer after summer after summer. And, and when, when we filmed the movie in 2016, he had already done the 3,100 mile race 13 times. That's crazy. There's another woman named Superba Beckard, American woman from Washington, D.C., who had done it 13 times. But, but get this. Ashby Hanal ran the six-day race in New York, the 10-day race, a 1,000-mile race, a 1,300-mile race, and the 3,100-mile race. He has logged more than 53,000 racing miles on the streets and parks of New York City. That's about – that's like racing a marathon a weekend for 39 years. Or that's like, like doing 100 miles a week 
for 10 straight years. And these are all racing miles. So he's at once he's a paper boy. He's a he's a he's a postman in Finland, which is how he he logs, you know, eight to 10 hours of fast walking a day, five days a week. But he's just this phenomenal freak of nature. He he certainly is. He seems like a very laid back person, but the film starts with you filming him talking to a mentor of his or a coach and he's 45 years old and he's about to run this again for, I guess, then the 14th time. And, and he's saying he doesn't want to run anymore that he's, (laughs) that he actually wants to stop running. But it seems like Sanjay, there's this piece of him that can't stop. I got the feeling during the film that this guy will never stop running. You know, he's coming back this summer, 2019, to do the race for the 15th time. And that's the crux of the movie, right? As, as, you, as, you, as you know from having kindly watched it, you know, there's a part of him that wants to win. But there's a part of him that knows that there's something much deeper in the race. And his reason for running cannot be to win. It has to be to to challenge himself, to learn about himself. And think about, you know, what a Petri dish it is to spend 18 hours a day doing one activity, whether it's painting or reading or writing or running. You know, you're forced to overcome a lot of your own conceptions about yourself. You're forced to really accept who you are for all your good qualities and bad qualities. And at the end of the day, he knows that the 3,100-mile race is kind of like an accelerant for him in terms of his own goals to become a happier, more joyful, more satisfied person. And he can get that kind of catalyzing experience through the 3,100-mile race. And that's why he keeps coming back. Yeah, I want to get back to that in just a second, because there's another person who you follow later on who brings me to a couple philosophical questions. But before we do that, I want to play just a small clip from the from the film. The, uh, the film, by the way, again, the name is 3100 Run and Become. And this is the race director talking to the entrance, I believe. Uh, maybe what is it, essentially the day before the race happens? Is it the exactly? OK. We welcome everyone to the 20th annual Frechin Moy Self Transcendence 3100 mile race. What really makes this race special is its spiritual focus. The 3100 mile race really is the embodiment of self transcendence. But this is the only race that I might say that can guarantee to the runners that. No matter when you cross the finish line or how many miles you do, you will be changed and you will be changed for the better. Okay, I, I have to say one more thing. Sri Moy gave me the permission that if I decide to pull you out of the race, you are out of the race for whatever reason. If there's something going on, you have a problem, and I say you're out of the race, you are out of the race and it's not questioned. Okay, is that clear to everyone? That's very important. Okay, thank you very much. And there is some serious risk here. I mean, these people don't come out, Sanjay, and and just begin running 3,100 miles with no preparation. There's some very serious preparation they do. They have to deal on that course, not only with the pounding, but they are they have to ingest 10 to 12,000 calories a day. So like all of your like inner organ systems have to be functioning. There's a lot of inflammation. There's a lot of, a lot of toxins created from that type of exercise. You have to be able to process it. 
and it's in the summer in New York City. So it gets hot. Like the hottest days are going to be between 100 and 104 degrees with the heat index. Asprey Hanal keeps a, a journal as he runs. I mean, he really takes the meditative part of this very seriously. You know, we were able to get glimpses into his experience through the fact that he was recording some of his daily thoughts. And we did the same with one of our other characters, an Austrian woman named Shamita Achenbach-Konig, who's a phenomenal distance runner and a professional cellist in Vienna. And after a 20-year hiatus from ultra distance running, you know, came and, and qualified for the 3100 and ran it in the summer of 2016, or I should say attempted it in the 20, summer of 2016. I actually want to go to a clip of her next. I'm glad you transitioned to her because this is where I think we get incredibly philosophical. Uh, this is a clip from her daughter talking to her in Austria in the weeks before the race. So are you excited about the race? upcoming mm. of course i mean it's a long long preparation like in january i decided to do this and you grow into this project it's in the beginning it's like overwhelming like mm -hmm. for, for many many parts in you for your mind and for your emotions and everything and then you start training and then you come a little bit into it when you were saying that so many people ask you if you're going to run the race and you were actually thinking maybe maybe I was dead against it because I almost lost you 20 years ago when you did a 100 kilometer race mm -hmm. in Vienna and when you almost died. Mm -hmm. now, um, I mean, this is something later. that always accompanies you, but I'm not afraid of it because um, I'm not afraid of it. Of course, yeah, when we die, we die. But we also have to live when we live. <laughs> What do you think is bringing her back to the race? Shamita is so tough. The reason why I loved her as a character is, you know, it, it, we all have this kind of like this concept of, of like the male mountain climber ascending the Himalayas and, you know, perhaps with a, a weeping wife and a weeping child at home, you know, maybe this would be the last time they ever see each other. And, and the man is off to conquer the mountain. Shamita has that same type of personality where she has a goal and like the mountain is calling her and the, hence the, the 3,100 mile race and that achievement is calling her. And she knows that like everyone in the race, she's got a weakness. It just happens that her weakness is the heat. She almost died in a race in, I think, I believe 1996, 1997 because of overheating. At the same time, she feels like she can overcome that with enough discipline, enough preparation and despite the fact that you know this could be an ultimately deadly endeavor, she does it. Um, we 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 tend to to think of men as heroes when they do that. And here, you know, maybe somebody thinks that she's abandoning her family, but she's very much you know an alpha female and feels that you know her daughter and her husband will be better people if she sticks to her own intentions and and aspirations. You know, showing her as a musician was important to me because have you read the philosophy flow? I have. Yeah, I have actually. And it seems like there's this practice for people that don't know about flow. And it's a it's a phenomenal book. 
and I'm not going to get his name, Mikhail, uh, big name, <laughs> uh, but I will link to it in the show notes because I think it's important. Y- you know, he studies musicians and looks at the, the fact that they will practice hours and hours and hours and hours. And yet, you know, people don't appreciate the symphony. They don't appreciate musicians in the symphony. And yet they will practice and practice and practice. And it doesn't seem to me, Sanjay, to be a stretch that she's a musician really looking at flow. And then this 3,100 mile race, which really it seems like for a lot of the participants is getting back into this philosophical state of flow, this perfect, perfect being. That's absolutely true. I think one, one of the difficulties that, that she actually had in the race was that she was so mentally disciplined and she could almost project her success. And in many races that she had run in many aspects of her life, she could enter that flow but there wasn't an antagonist as powerful in those experiences as the weather. And in fact, in the summer of 2016, the, the first three weeks of the race were uncharacteristically cold. And it was great for the runners. But then when it got hot, it got really, really, really hot. And she and a lot of the other runners were forced to alter their game plan. It's as if the flow state took an absolutely unexpected 90-degree turn. And you, you saw your goal ahead of you within reach. I mean, it's like a mountain climber. You see the goal ahead of you. You see the summit 100 feet away. But to get there, you might have to backtrack hundreds of yards um, back and forth to get to that summit. And so the heat was that unexpected right turn. And her fate in the movie depended on how well she was able to follow and chase that flow. And people will have to see the movie to find out, you know, how well she did. Well, and there's one other thing we won't tell people about, which is how it finishes. But, but did you expect it to go like that? You know, as, as you know, the race came down effectively to the wire. Yeah. Uh, where there was really like, not l- literally a photo finish, but in terms of percentages, there were just a few miles separating number one and number two, and they both gave it their all in the 24 hours before that finish line. It's as if you were running from San Francisco to New York and you saw the winner crossing the bridge into Manhattan and you could see him and you chased him all the way across the U.S. It was that close. And, you know, both of the runners in those positions were really going beyond their own personal capacities. And at the end, they had to be happy with the results. You know, they had to be happy with the fact that they blew past their own limitations. They literally transcended. And so in that experience, what does it mean to be first and second? It's so phenomenal. And it's funny if you've reached this part of, of the interview, and in fact, I'm out of time, but if you've reached this part of the interview and you're wondering, what does that have to do with money? This is so much to do with goal setting and what's life all about and why are we accumulating money anyway? There's so much in here that is so much to do with the stuff we talk about every day. I just thought it was, it was, it was phenomenal. I would encourage people to go to the website, 3100 film. It's the number 3100 film.com. I want to ask you something about the website, by the way, right on the front, you have a pledge that people can take for runners. And I was wondering why, was it just for people to get their own little experience themselves, their own little taste of what these people are going through? So we, we have two levels, which are completely different from one another. It's like, you know, run 3100 seconds a day for a certain number of days, or try to log 3,100 miles 
in a year. 3,100 miles in a year is effectively, you know, more or less 55 miles, 60 miles a week for for the 52 weeks in, in a year. And it just tells you how long of a distance that is. Yeah, both of those are not easy for the average person who doesn't run a lot. No, and, and it, it shows you that, like, most of us are lucky to run 3,100 miles across two, three, four, or five years, uh, unless you're a committed, ultra-committed ultra-runner like like your wife is. Um, it's the it's the distance between San Francisco and New York on roads, or London and Damascus in Europe. It's a long ways, and these people pound it out in less than two months. That's so so amazing. Uh, where can we watch the film if we want to invite friends over and have a viewing party? Oh, I mean that'd be awesome. The film's available on iTunes, on Amazon, and Google Play in the U.S. and Canada, and actually a number of countries as well. That's awesome. And you know what? We'll link to all those sources on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Sanjay, thanks a ton for hanging out with us for a few minutes. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited. And one of these days, if people don't know already what a closet ultra runner you are, um, <laughs> the, they, they should. You should do a whole episode with your wife and all of your own like running exploits. As I've told you previously, if I run 26.3 miles, something went seriously wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And today we're going to pay tribute to our namesake, the original stacker, Benjamin Franklin. Today is the very day that Mr. Franklin, as we call him here in the basement, have some respect, people. Well, he flew his kite in a lightning storm back in 1752. Old Ben is known for plenty of things, such as being a founding father of this country... Yeah, no big deal. Accomplishing plenty of science experiments and, get this, creating a musical device known as a glass harmonica, which was played by the likes of Marie Antoinette, Mozart, and Beethoven. I haven't even mentioned his greatest accomplishment. He was also a French fashion icon, just like me. But all that aside, let's return to our roots with today's trivia question. Keeping Benjamin Franklin in mind... Who is the only other founding father featured on U.S. currency that was not El Presidente? I'll be back with your answer in just a moment. Bonjour. Welcome to French Made Easy with me, your host, Mathilde. Today, I'm joined by certified financial planner Devin Carroll, and together we will share a popular and simple French phrase so you too can use it in your own life. Sound easy? Sure. Today's phrase is Mutual funds with high fees make me uncomfortable, Larry. In French, you would say this popular phrase just like this. Larry, les fonds de placement avec des frais élevés me mettent mal à l'aise. Once again. Larry, les fonds de placement avec des frais élevés me mettent mal à l'aise. Now, let's hear certified financial planner Devin Carroll try it. Ready, Devin? Okay. Fonds communes de placement, Larry avec des honoraires, élevés me font mal à l'aise. Ugh, nailed it. Perfect. See how we sound almost exactly alike? You too can speak French easily and comfortably listening to Stacking Benjamins. See you next time. Au revoir. (laughs) 
Welcome back to my trivia, Franklinistas. I'm sure that's what the French used to call their beloved American friend. And that they're not talking about me. They're talking about you know Ben Franklin. Anyway, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And before the break, we were talking all about Franklin's different accomplishments. And while I'm totally stoked that we can talk about the original stacker today, our trivia is about a different founding father. Before the break, I asked you this question. Who is the only other founding father featured on U.S. currency that was not a U.S. president? The answer? Someone call up Lin-Manuel and tell him we're not throwing away our shop because featured on the $10 bill is none other than Washington's right-hand dude, Alexander Hamilton. But we won't be the ones telling that story. That's for Broadway and, you know, now theaters across the country. Anyway, see ya! Big thanks to Sanjay for hanging out. You know, gee, I like this analogy of the ultra marathon because I don't like the analogy of ultra marathons. <laughs> I think we all want our credit card debt paid off today. We're excited about our goals today. We want it now. The fact that this is an ultra marathon and that maybe having systems and monitoring like is they're monitoring their food intake over time they're monitoring their their rest levels over time i mean all of this all this stuff yeah well it's really important to recognize that you just can't go from zero to 60 on an earlier episode i talked about everybody wants to do steps 9 10 11 12 of the pyramid because those are the really fun ones and still to this day, people will say, hey, I know I don't have a cash reserve built, but I really want to buy investment property in real estate. <laughs> you know, I haven't paid off all my credit card debt, but I feel I'm missing out by not putting money in my Roth. Should I max that out instead of paying off my credit card debt? You have to do things in a very specific order to build the foundation that allows you the freedom to do those other next level things. And the snowball that comes from that, the, the rate of change that happens when you build it the right way is so much better than having something go wrong. And now you take three steps backward again and start the plan all over again, start the path all over again, because yeah, you managed to accumulate 15 grand in your brokerage account. Great job. But now you're laid off because you don't have a cash reserve. Now your brokerage account goes to zero and you're starting over again. So when it comes to personal financial planning, I guess I can sign off on the ultra marathon analogy maybe yeah it's i can't imagine anybody doing this though i just i don't know what it's like i don't think think i could run 3100 miles in a lifetime i just don't get what makes those people tick i mean it's like you and i have a uh have a friend who's climbed mount everest twice and i i i just have no desire i don't understand what the attraction is well seeing the curvature of the earth would be pretty cool yeah. But you know what? I got to see it through his video of it, which was awesome. <laughs> which is just, which is second good. It is way second better best. having a friend do the work and you look at the pictures. That's right. My... Yeah. Could you get that in HD? Could you superimpose? <laughs> well, I guess you're so covered up. No one would know it's not me. Yeah. So Let's I'll just, just pretend. I did it. It's sure. really cold. Hey, look... climbing Everest cold? <laughs> Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. And we went to some of our friends and asked them what they value first. And Aaron in our Facebook group said uh, California weather and palm trees. Pretty good combo. Yeah. It, it, in fairness, it was still winter when these were written. But um, heck, I'll take uh, 
palm trees any day. It's actually your loved ones in your time, but having loved ones' time and palm trees, all good. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Their application's simple and online. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. Policies are issued by parent company Mass Mutual, more than 160 year old insurer. Today, we're saying hi to our friend Jason, throwing out the lifeline to him. Hey, Jason. Hey, guys. I uh, appreciate the show. I'm one of those uh, fiery millennials, and I've been contributing to the Roth 401k and hope to retire in my 40s. So I'm wondering um, the contributions that I made to Roth 401k. If, if I roll that Roth 401k over to a Roth IRA or convert it to a Roth IRA, will I be able to take the contributions out tax and penalty free in my 40s, pre-59 and a half? Will there be uh, any, any problem doing that? Would the five-year conversion rule apply when rolling a Roth 401k to a Roth IRA? I know I probably won't be able to touch the earnings, but what about the contributions that I made while to the Roth 401k? All right. Appreciate all the help. Thanks. Bye. There's a good question. When you take money out of a Roth IRA OG after five years, of course, the contributions can come out pre 59 and a half because you put them in. So what's the, uh, what's the ruling about money in a Roth 401k? Hey, Jason, thanks for taking the time to call in. So if you're contributing to a Roth 401k and then you subsequently retire pre 59 and a half and then you roll it into a Roth IRA, how do you get the money out if you want an early retirement? Well, the interesting thing is, is that Roth 401ks have a different five-year time horizon than a regular Roth IRAs. A Roth IRA doesn't matter how many Roth IRAs you have. It's the first one you open starts that five-year clock. And we count that five years for distributions of principal tax-free. A Roth 401k, however, starts a five-year clock every job you have. So if you move from job to job and you transfer that 401k money into the new 401k, you've started that five-year clock over again with those dollars. So as long as you move it from a 401k to an IRA, then the 401k dollars will take the the same time horizon, so to speak, of the other dollars in the IRA. So let's say, for example, that you retire in 2020, you've been contributing to a Roth 401k for 10 years, and you do not have a Roth IRA open. And now you are retiring and you're moving your money into a Roth IRA. Now you will have a five-year waiting period in order to withdraw the principal uh, without penalty. If you already have an existing Roth IRA, let's say that this year you started a Roth in 2019, you have four years to go. And if you have already had a Roth and you started a Roth way back in 2006, you've already met the five-year period, obviously, because it's been, you know, 15 years. Then uh, when you put that money from the 401k into the IRA, those dollars are are assumed to have also met the five-year period. So the critical thing is, no matter how old you are right now, no matter how much money you have, get some money into a Roth because it starts that five-year time horizon, that five-year clock, even if it's a hundred bucks and you buy, you know, one st- share of Apple stock in it and that's all you got right now, you're starting that five-year time horizon that could be useful five, six, seven, eight years down the line when you do have money and you're able to save or you are choosing an early retirement and that sort of thing. Thanks for the question, Jason. We also are finishing up with the mailbag. 
David sent us this note a while ago now. Hey guys, I'm a 41 year old who just started to pay more attention to my financial situation and credit your show for this. That's cool. Thanks, David. I recently started listening to podcasts, came randomly across your show. Anyway, my question is this. What's the advantage of using a financial advisor and buying mutual funds or any recommended funds that usually have expense ratios in the 1% to 2% range? I get they could diversify and manage acute issues with certain economic trends, but why can't I just diversify by buying SPY, QQQ, uh, which, by the way, is known as the spider. That's SPY. That is the S&P 500. Generally, there's a cheaper way to buy that than SPY. QQQ is if, as if you buy the NASDAQ. DIA is called a diamond. Uh, that's if you buy the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And then he says, and then throw in a Vanguard International ETF, REITs, U.S. savings bonds, et cetera, thus paying much less in expense ratios. I feel like I can't get a straight answer on this. I realize you may not want to answer this question based on advertisers and people you work with. Oh, no, we'll answer it, dude. But if you could just write me back. <laughs> no, David, we're going to answer this because... We've got a lot to say on this issue. This is, by the way, my favorite misconception. And whenever I see people making this misconception, I'm happy to add in my uh, two cents. So, G, what do you think? Well, a couple of things. First of all, he's right. You don't need to pay anybody anything to go out and pick, pick you know, 2% active mutual funds. Maybe you should pay somebody to not pick 2% active mutual funds. But if that's the comparison basis of you know, what advisors do, which is advisors go out and find the most expensive thing and jam it down your throat, then obviously you have a bias toward not doing that. And I would too. It doesn't sound like a very good way to uh, to manage one's financial life. I'll take a little exception to your uh, diversification plan, which uh, largely excludes smaller companies. And then I will also add to the fact that uh, nowhere in there did you mention the correct allocation of all those things. SPY, DIA, and QQQ are effectively buying one of everything in the U.S. That's all technology-driven for, for all intents and purposes. So maybe there's some value there. But really, I don't think that a financial planner's role or financial advisor's role is solely to go out and find mutual funds for you or ETFs or separately managed accounts or hedge funds or private placements or any of those things. It's to partner with you to take the work that you're already doing to a different level. You know, we call this 101 stuff versus 301 stuff. You probably have all the 101 stuff done and that is more than satisfactory. You know, you can retire very comfortably by maxing out your 401k and put money in a Roth and send some money to a 529 so your kids can go to college, pay off your debt. Nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly fine approach. If you want to do things a little differently or if you want to kind of up the game a little bit, there is some professionals out there that can help make things a little bit more efficient, perhaps. Well, and here's here's the way I think that happens, OG, is an investment picker and a financial advisor are two totally different things. I would help people with their budget. I'd help them with their tax situation. We'd look at, we talked about Tom Petty and his estate. We'd make sure that we got that plan put together, oftentimes bringing in other professionals. But my job was to make sure that it was correct, done right, responsibly. We calculated what the insurance needs were. We took advantage of as many programs and opportunities that that places like uh, the place that you worked offered, organizations you belong to, areas that they offered. We looked into strategies for education, not getting ripped off by car dealers, 
I mean, it was buying a house the right way, having how all these strategies dovetail on your behalf is what a good financial advisor does, which is why I get frustrated when I see people say, well, my advisor got mediocre returns, so I fired them and I got a better. Good for you, man. That's not what I did. When I was a financial planner, it wasn't anywhere close to what I did. So the fact that you hired a financial advisor and used them to do the one little thing that you could probably do yourself. Well, here's the ultimate question I think you have to ask yourself. And, and, and really, only the consumer can answer this. And the work that financial planners do is not very linear. You might say, well, this year we met six times and we did all this stuff. And next year we only talked once and I really wouldn't do anything and that sort of thing. So it's not a linear, you know, time for time type of relationship. But this is kind of the question that I've always come back to year after year is assuming that it costs approximately 1% of the money that you have to work with a professional, which is kind of the going rate. Agree that that's too high, too low, whatever. But that's just kind of where it is nationally. If that's the case, do you think that that person could provide you an extra 1% of lifetime returns and or save you 1% of mistakes you might have made along the way But the one and or, I got one more, All right. don't cut me off, and or save you 1% of time, energy, and effort. And the weighting of all those three things will vary year to year in your own mind. And only you, the consumer can weigh those three things and say, I'm getting value for the money that I'm paying. Well, I think it's even more than that because that's only broke even, right? I mean, sure. I mean, it's got to be above break even to actually make sense. You know, food cost in a restaurant can only be 30%. So you, you have to see it as an even bigger win than that. It is frustrating to me, though, the amount of time I would meet people that were sabotaging themselves over and over and over on financial stuff that had nothing to do with picking QQQ. Yeah. So to finish that thought... You said we could write you and say, go for it, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I mean, there's a good spot in life and there's a good spot in your personal situation where hiring an outside professional for anything, not just money, makes sense. And if you've got the aptitude and you've got the time and energy to put into it, yeah, go for it on your own, man. Thanks for that question. If you've got a question, you can call the Haven Lifeline. It's uh, stackofbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Just make sure that the computer you're using or your phone has a good microphone and you're good to go. And by the way, Jason's taking home a greatest money show on earth t-shirt as well for calling in. That's going to do it for today. Man, what a great show. So much fun. Love doing these even on a Monday. Oh, gee. Well, actually, probably mostly because it's Monday because it makes my Monday way, way, way Just brighter. Despite the fact that it's Monday. <laughs> Makes it so much brighter. Thanks to everybody who's left a review of this here podcast. Here's one that mom has on her fridge today. This is from Chris. Chris says, I give it a five-ish, five stars. This is the only podcast I wish there were daily episodes of. Imagine trying to put that together, OG. You and I have enough trouble doing three. Yeah. I began listening two months ago. It's completely changed my mindset of how an early investor like myself should be setting goals. While the Jim Cramers of the world boast about hot takes on how to gamble, Joe and the other guy give realistic and relatable advice on how to set myself up for success. No longer afraid to ask my advisor dumb questions, and I'm even getting great tips on how to thoughtfully bring up savings topics to my wife. The three other listeners of this show may joke about never learning anything, but my growing fat stacks prove otherwise. Thanks. Wow, Chris. 
See, we didn't even have to pay Chris. Oh, gee, no 10 bucks to that guy. And he still brought it. What's that all about? Pretty nice. Yeah, very nice. Thoughtful. And mom's got it on the fridge. So thanks a ton for that. But at this point in the show, let's turn it over maybe scarily to Doug. Doug, what should we have learned if we learned anything at all on today's episode? So what did we learn today? First, take some advice from Sanjay Rawal and think about what pushes you to do more. Eh, Maybe it's not running 3,100 miles around a block in New York City, but could be something. Push yourself, but most importantly, enjoy the ride. Second, how about a lesson from Tom Petty's family? Get your estate plan in order and stat. But the big lesson... Don't show Joe's mom pictures of Ben Franklin. She keeps thinking Ben was somebody she went to high school with. What's that? No, mom. Mom, I'm telling you, he's just a couple years older than you. Wow. Big thanks to Sanjay Rawal for joining us. Check out his film, 3100 Run and Become, at 3100film.com. That's 3100film.com. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Does anybody else spend hours wondering what Kenny Loggins is doing on any given Tuesday morning? Oh, no, that's just me. So I'm doing this, uh, I'm doing this detox and my energy level is all over the place. I'm on day two, day number one, uh, the day where your caffeine withdrawal makes you realize just how addicted you are. Why, why are you detoxing from caffeine? Uh, not just detox from, from everything Kev, just, just to do like one thing. Detoxing from a bunch of stuff. It's, it's a program through my gym and it Who's is gym. I don't yeah, think he's qualified. Jim might, based on the way I feel right now, Jim might not be qualified. So I go through these highs and lows right now. I've got super duper highs. I'm like, hey, I feel great. And oh my good. Even last night, the first night, they said after four or five nights, you'll sleep phenomenally well because of all the toxins that have been 
flushed out of your system. Well, isn't that what your uh, liver and kidneys are supposed to do? That that you're actually doing a cleansing of your liver and kidneys during this process. Hmm. Yes. So I've heard it's all mythical stuff. It really doesn't happen. Well, apparently it. I don't know. It seems to be working. Feeling good though? Because well, when I feel good, but halfway through this episode, even I went, "Whoa, hey there!" All of a sudden, a little bit more trouble concentrating. Note to self: cancel Joe's wine subscription for his birthday. <laughs> I know. I know. Send him carrot sticks instead. When you realize all this stuff, not good. Detox to retox, baby. Got to get ready to go. You know, it's funny. I had a friend in Texas who became a deacon of his church. And while he was a deacon, they, they discouraged drinking generally. But if you're a deacon in the church, they definitely say, yeah, you're not drinking any alcohol. And Ever? so uh, uh, for the two years that he was a deacon. But the bad news, I think he kind of missed the point because at the end of it, he... he <laughs> Binged for like six weeks totally straight. Did. Like a bender. He, t- he he had the biggest party the day after where he just got hammered on, you know, my deacon retirement party. Yeah. Like three drinks. I'm like, I don't think this is, this is the message. I don't think this is the benefit of detoxing is that you get the opportunity to be a cheap date for a while again. Experience that. I don't know. I, I have to say, I, I, uh, I've heard that that day four, you feel great, but crossing that moat. Mm -hmm. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. You should have just a couple of chocolate chip cookies to like get the shakes out. <laughs> That'd be great. Cheryl comes home today. Said, "Hey, how did it go?" Uh, like I'm feeling great. Lots of energy. Everything's wonderful. She's like the the box of Oreos that's like crushed up at the bottom of the trash. Like in, not even in the trash, but it's in the dumpster, like the big trash thing out by the road. She's like, "Joseph, I've got. Did cookies. you have a whole thing of Oreos?" You're like, "No." Cookie crumbs, like crumbs all around all my mouth. Yep. All stuck in my it's teeth. Like a tub of ice cream. Yep. I had to. I feel like that right now. The devil made me do it. There there are some pretzels sitting over on that counter, and I mm-hmm. know they're there, and I flip and want one because I know they're there. I found out that I can I can eat like almonds or olives or yeah. uh I got like a big tub of olives I've been cranking on those. I got the olives with the garlic inside so that nobody wants to be near me. Well, you didn't even need that. Nobody wants to be near you anyway. So it works out. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. 
visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.